We are just a few days at this point past the Martin Luther King National Holiday. And um, I remember Martin Luther King. I remember the coverage he used to get frequently on television, which was not as much as he should have, but they, he did make the news. He did get heard. And unfortunately, he was killed in 1968. And sadly, no one of his stature has emerged over the past half century to take his place. On his actual birthday, they were playing some, some clips from King back in the 1960s, and one really, really struck me. King was referring to how it was the United States Senate was going to use the filibuster to block expansion of voting rights for black people. And it seemed to me that he was speaking to us from the grave about what is currently going on in Congress. And make no mistake about it, if you've listened to this program before, we certainly hope you have, you'll note that we've spent a lot of time looking at this issue of voter suppression. There's currently a massive effort underway in this country to make sure that, um, well, black people don't vote. The reason for this is that black people tend to vote Democratic. And they do so at rates of something like 90%, meaning if you can disenfranchise 1 million black voters across the country, you'll have neutralized something like 800,000 Democratic votes. When Martin Luther King was complaining about the use of the filibuster back in the 1960s, the villains in this piece were Democrats, Southern Democrats. Although it's hard to believe now, being a segregationist was a mainstream Democratic Southern position in the, as late as the 1960s. But when Lyndon Johnson got the Civil Rights Act passed in 1965, he knew it was going to cost him heavily with the Democrats. Because waiting to scoop up those anti-civil rights people were the Republicans. We'll have quite a bit more to say about that before we're through. Anyway, they changed the rules on the filibuster many years back. No doubt many of you have seen the Jimmy Stewart classic, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, where by the, the rules in place then, someone had to basically occupy the floor and um, hold forth to, to, to gum up legislation that was in the works. Anyway, the rules were changed to where all you did was hold up the possibility of, of, of not having 60 votes to cork up legislation. That's, that's where we stand right now. The Biden administration is trying to urge the 50 Democratic senators to change the rules in the filibuster, but there's two holdouts, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona. They've made the argument, which, which I, I guess is somewhat legit, they made the argument that if we do this, and then Republicans take majority control of the chamber, they can then use the lower voting threshold to advance bills the Democrats strongly oppose and would like to gum up. Mr. Milne points out that uh, Manchin is, is probably a dino, Democrat in name only. But make no mistake about it. All these efforts going on across the country to, um, first of all, disenfranchise black voters is aimed at Republican hegemony. And all of the parallel efforts across the country to change who gets to count the votes and validate elections state after state after state is also a way of just basically going around the democratic process. And by the way, stealing an election by both invalidating black voters and changing the rules on who gets to um, pick the electors, it's been done before. 
which is going to promote our review of the election of 1876, which is quite a low point in American history and, and not very well known. We talked about it on this program some years back, but looks like we probably ought to do so again. Before I do that, I want to note the passing of um, a great black American, although we would call him a Bahamian American, actor Sidney Poitier. He passed away recently at the age of 95. And Sidney Poitier really did shake things up. He came along in the 50s and 60s, tall, charismatic, and set out to become a leading man. (coughs) And set out to make a name for himself as a leading man, upending the long tradition of black actors portraying only entertainers or servants. He gave audiences something unprecedented, it's been said in his obituaries, Black characters with poise, dignity, and authority. He was the first black nominee for Best Actor for his portrayal of an escaped prisoner chained to a white racist in 1958's The Defiant Ones. Five years later, he became the first to win the Oscar for the role of an itinerant handyman who helps a group of nuns build a church in the lilies of the field. His fame hit a peak in 1967 when he starred in three major hits, To Serve With Love, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner?, and In the Heat of the Night, which he gave his most celebrated performance as a Philadelphia detective who helps a racist Mississippi sheriff, Rod Steiger, investigate a murder. Here's the sad part. Though he was surely an active voice in the civil rights movement, Portier faced criticism from more militant blacks for playing sainted characters unthreatening to whites, a criticism he understood but rejected. Wrote Portier, There's a place for people who are angry and defiant, and sometimes they serve a purpose, but that's never been my role. Apparently the criticism of, 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 of the then equivalent of woke folks back in the 60s got to Portier. Some of his more militant critics labeled him step and fetch it in a gray flannel suit. Stung by this criticism I'm tired and getting tired of racial politics, he retreated back to the Bahamas for a few years. And when he emerged in the early 1970s, it was, he was as a director. And I did not know this, but Sidney Poitier was the director for the prison comedy from 1980 starring Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor titled Stir Crazy. Funny movie. I noticed one picture also in references to Poitier at at the Lincoln Memorial joining singer Harry Belafonte and actor Charlton Heston. Like Poitier, Belafonte was born in 1927 and came to America, in this case from Jamaica, to make a name for himself. And I thought it'd be nice for once to commemorate somebody before they pass. So I thought I would make, a, make some mention of the works of Harry Belafonte. He considered the actor, singer, and activist Paul Robeson as a mentor and was a close confidant of Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. Noted in a piece in Wikipedia, Belafonte supported the Civil Rights Movement in the 50s and 60s and was one of Martin Luther King's confidants. He provided for King's family since Martin Luther King only made about $8,000 a year as a preacher. Like many other civil rights activists, Belafonte was blacklisted during the McCarthy era. During the 1963 Birmingham campaign, he bailed King out of the Birmingham City Jail and raised $50,000 to release other civil rights protesters. During the Mississippi Freedom Summer of 1964, Belafonte bankrolled the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, He flew to Mississippi that August with Sidney Portier and $60,000 in cash to entertain crowds. 
Here's one little anecdote that really struck me, showing, I hope, how far we've come. In 1968, Harry Belafonte appeared on a Petula Clark primetime television special on NBC. In the middle of a duet of On the Path to Glory, Clark smiled and briefly touched Belafonte's arm, which prompted complaints from Doyle Lott, the advertising manager of the show's sponsor, Plymouth Motors. Lott wanted to retape the segment. But Clark, who had ownership of the special, told NBC the performance would be shown intact or she would not allow it to be aired at all. Newspapers reported this controversy. Lott was relieved of his responsibilities, and when the special aired, it got high ratings. And to look back at how far we've come from the, the age of slavery, I thought it was high time I read a book that I... Um, it's been sitting on my shelf for half century. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Although it's not considered a great work of literature. Actually, I'm not sure why it is it's not considered a great work of literature. Because as a collection of vignettes that told a story that, that, that inflamed an entire nation, it's, it's, it's pretty hard to find a book with more impact than this one. The idea of being sold down the river which is something that the, the black slaves in the borderline states um, feared, is, um, is outlined in great clarity in Uncle Tom's Cabin, uh, to which I would just say, if you've never read it, you should consider doing so. Some would criticize it for being patronizing of the black slave population, and I suppose at times it maybe is. If you set that against what the book was setting out to accomplish and, and what the book succeeded in accomplishing, it's a pretty small criticism. But I think it is fair to say that Uncle Tom's Cabin had a major role to play in the United States Civil War from 1861 to 1865. Although you will hear jackass Southern apologists uh, try and say that, well, it wasn't really a civil war and it wasn't really about slavery. It was the war between the states. The states just had a disagreement. Of course, as many a scholar pointed out in that wonderful Ken Burns um, documentary on the Civil War from several decades ago, Yeah, the laws that they were disagreeing on had to do with slavery. Hello? No one was taking up arms over, you know, different state mottos. That'd be good to pull out my constitution and take a look at it. Uh, There are three amendments in the Bill of Rights that are referred to as the Reconstruction Amendments. Amendments 13, 14, and 15. These were drafted by Republicans who wanted to impose their own policy of Reconstruction on the South. In the aftermath of the war, numerous southern states had set up laws that effectively perpetuated slavery under another name. Therefore, three amendments were added to the U.S. Constitution. The 13th abolished slavery. The 14th established that citizenship rights could not be abridged just because you'd been a slave. And Amendment 15 established that race was not to bar voting rights. This is one we need to take a look at. It's amazingly brief. It was proposed by Congress on February 26, 1869, and ratified by February 3rd of the next year. Section 1 states, The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Section 2 notes that Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. And that's it. But then wouldn't you know it, the Republican Party lost interest in slavery and and the formerly enslaved. 
They got a lot more interested in things like railroads and taking vast swaths of territory and having it handed over to them. So they kind of looked the other way when the Ku Klux Klan arose and when states nevertheless passed legislation that sort of made it tough to vote if you're black. Passed things like the grandfather clause in, in laws stating, well, if your grandfather voted, you could vote. They introduced poll taxes to where you had to pay a certain amount of money, a tax, to vote. If you didn't pay the tax, you didn't get to vote. And when you know the Supreme Court came in on the side of um, the oppressors, when civil libertarians tried to argue that having segregated railway compartments was unconstitutional, according to uh, these Reconstruction Amendments, they uh, decided in the case Plessy versus Ferguson that, well, uh, no, we admit that the, the facilities are separate, but separate doesn't mean that they're unequal. That's the key thing. They can't be unequal. And this bit of preposterous legal fiction uh, was maintained for the next half century up till the 1950s when it was finally reversed with the Brown versus Board of Education decision. For more on that, we refer you to our interview conducted several years back with William Batetta who runs the museum in Kansas, which is dedicated to uh, the case of Brown versus Board of Education. But I made reference earlier to the notorious election of 1876, and I think we need to, need to go back and take a look at that again. In 1876, Ulysses S. Grant was the president of the United States, a guy who had basically won the war for the Union. In what's called the Reconstruction Period, as the South was being brought back uh, into the United States, there were at least three states that had military governorships put in place by the Republicans. Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina, I believe. The Republican candidate was Rutherford B. Hayes, described by a contemporary journalist as a third-rate non-entity. The Democrats were running Samuel J. Tilden as their man. And it appears in retrospect that Tilden won the election rather handily. After all, back in that time period, the Democratic Party was the pro-slavery party. At least it was in the southern states. The Democrats were none too keen to let uh, black people vote because they were going to vote Republican. At this point, a spy working for Western Union got a hold of a telegram indicating that the Democrats in the South were not positive they could make the case unequivocally that Tilden had won those states. Seizing the opportunity, the Republicans then sent messages to all of those governorships saying, hold your state. In other words, don't release the vote count. We got business to do. To make a very, very long story very short, the Republicans were able to call into question the votes of those three states, which led to a giant fight in Congress and eventually electoral commission being put together to decide who really won, and wouldn't you know it, in a vote along party lines, eight to seven, all the disputed electors got awarded to Rutherford B. Hayes, who then became president by virtue of having 185 electoral votes to Tilden's 184. It is a sordid episode. But the Democrats were in on the deal. The idea was that, okay, all right, we'll let Rutherford Hayes become president, but what we want from you is to just kind of leave things be down south. Yeah, there's a lot of social reforms that could take place after the Civil War, but we just assume you wouldn't really push that too hard. 
So it was, I understand, that as late as the 1950s, in many southern states, you had as few as 1% of the black population registered and able to vote, which is why the nation needed a Martin Luther King and efforts to register black voters in the South. It took a while, but these efforts did succeed, even in places like Alabama, where an avowedly segregationist governor named George Wallace had stood against admitting students to the University of Alabama, students that were black, Once lots of black folks had the power to vote, well, good old George Wallace changed his tune. That's how it is with politicians. But make no mistake about it, the pendulum is swinging back the other way, and we will bring you Greg Pallast in the next month or so to talk about the state of affairs. And we'll also bring Stephen J. Harper back on to talk about what's going on with Trump Part 2. I must say I was very annoyed to take a look at the East Bay Times and headline article about, well, the, the headline is bad blood. The sub, subheadline is, it runs deep in Hanford over infamous vote to impeach Trump. And in this rather stupid piece by Julia Protus Sulek, Representative David Valadao, who's a Republican from Hanford, is being pilloried. Well, I don't know, I don't know what else you can call it when the headline is infamous vote to impeach Trump. What about courageous vote to impeach Trump? Anyway, there's so many things I could say about this. Uh, probably, maybe first and foremost is that cousin David Valadao deserves a pat on the back. And yes, it does turn out that I am related to the congressman. I had the family genealogist, uh, Michael, take a look at it. And turned out, yeah, he found a common ancestor between me and the congressman dating from something like 1802. Anyway, it is sad to note that, uh, that Valadao is, is facing serious challenge for a return to Congress because, yeah, a lot of folks in Hanford are kind of PO'd that he uh, owed to impeach Donald Trump. And that's all I'm going to say about it right now. Got a bunch of science articles I want to do, but we're going to do those in a block, so not right now. How much time we got left, Mr. Billen? All right, 11 minutes. Let's change gears. Anyway, I'm reaching for the week, good week four section to do our good, bad, and the ugly, and Right at the top of the page, we have America's schism. Are we headed for a civil war? What's astonishing is that people are actually asking that question openly now. I mean, the cover of the Week magazine was one of the more uh, jarring ones I've seen. It shows a guy with a, a, a big red tie in a suit wielding a knife blade at the throat of a bald eagle. The headline is, American Peril. Can democracy survive polarization, the big lie, and the next election? Well, yeah, rest assured we'll be addressing that question in the weeks to come. But instead, let us take a moment to do the good, the bad, and the ugly. of the week magazine it was a good week last week for getting the jab after british doctors treating men who've had covid reported that the virus sometimes damages vessels in the penis causes impotence and a permanent reduction in its size now all you anti-vaxxers out there 
If it hasn't occurred to you up till now that there are good enough reasons to go out and get a shot, how about this one? An active COVID infection may give you a smaller penis. Ouch. And it was, on the other hand, a bad week, we'd have to say, for artistic flourishes. After, again, a story from Britain, a British surgeon, Simon Bramhall, was banned from practicing medicine. The reason? Well, when he transplanted some livers, he would tend to brand his initials in the liver. For his part, Bramhall admitted doing the branding, which he called stupid and entirely wrong. Mr. Will asked the question, how did they find out? I'm thinking, well, perhaps at autopsy later on when they were taking a look and, you know, saw SB burn into the liver that, you know, something was up. That's my guess. And we would add it was surely, surely a bad week for military surplus with the news that the Norwegian military announced that due to shortages, soldiers must turn in underwear issued during their mandatory military service so it can be recycled to new conscripts. And then what we would call have to call a bad and ugly week for mandates, there's this. North Korea has launched a campaign to pressure citizens to produce more human and animal poop for fertilizing their crops. North Koreans who fail to meet their manure quota will be fined and not allowed into public food markets, according to the government. Because we do have to point out, you know, if you're going to take these North Koreans and give them less food, well, not long after, you're probably going to exacerbate the poop crisis. That's just our guess. And finally, here's an item. We're not sure if it's good or bad or ugly or all three. I guess it is. But the word is that cargo scavengers are doing a brisk business reselling goods they've uncovered in abandoned shipping containers. That's according to Bloomberg Business World. Snarls in the supply chain have left an estimated 3 million containers isling on ships queued up at ports around the world. Containers lose their value when they don't reach their destinations on time, and customers might refuse to accept the goods or simply abandon them. That's opened ample opportunities for cargo salvage buyers, who either buy containers from distributors, if the contents are likely to be attractive, or charge a fee to take them off the shipper's hands. Often these buyers won't know exactly what the container will yield until they open it. And all these pieces got me wondering a bit about uh, containerized cargo, and fortunately to um, educate all of us about that subject, we have the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader series, in this case the actual and factual bathroom reader, which is the 31st in their series. Let's take a few minutes and quote from this. Notes the book, you probably haven't heard of Malcolm McLean, but he was one of the most innovative businessmen of the 20th century, and for good or bad, one of the architects of the modern globalized economy. Notes the piece, Malcolm McLean was like a lot of kids who graduated high school during the Great Depression. He had big dreams, but his family didn't have enough money to send him to college. So he got a job pumping gas, and after a few years, saved up enough money, $120, to buy a used pickup truck. With it, he went into business for himself, hauling produce, animal feed, and empty tobacco barrels around Winston-Salem, South Carolina. Soon he had more work than he could handle alone, so he brought in his sister and brother into the business. Then he began buying more trucks and hiring additional drivers to operate them. Two years later, during Thanksgiving week in 1937, McLean hauled a shipment of cotton bales to New Jersey, where they were going to be unloaded into a ship bound for Istanbul. Jersey City is at least a day's drive from Winston-Salem, and when McLean arrived at the port, he discovered it was going to take at least that long for the longshoreman to unload his truck. 
In those days, ships were still loaded and unloaded the same way they'd always been, by hand, one piece of cargo at a time, using manual labor. Each of McLean's bales of cotton had to be taken aboard the ship individually, by hand if it was small enough, or using a crane if it was too heavy for longshoremen to carry. Once aboard, the bale had to be secured in place with ropes, again by hand, to prevent it from being tossed by rough waters. Needless to say, loading and unloading a ship in this fashion was so inefficient and time-consuming that cargo ships typically spent half of their entire service lives stuck in port. This was the most expensive part of the journey. Shipping companies spent more money moving cargo on and off their ships than they did sailing them. As McLean sat there waiting for his truck to be unloaded, he wondered if he was going to make it back home in time for Thanksgiving, and it occurred to him that the process would be much quicker if his entire truck, along with its cargo, could be loaded aboard the ship as one unit. Then when it arrived in Istanbul, the truck could be unloaded and used to drive the cotton bales to their destination. More than 20 years passed before McLean was able to act on his intuition. By the 1950s, McLean and his siblings had built their business into the second largest trucking company in the U.S. Now, McLean had the seed money he needed to put his shipping idea to the test. He noticed over the years that when tanker ships carried crude from Texas to refineries on the East Coast, they made the return trip empty. No cargo was ever carried on deck either. All the oil was transported in huge tanks on the ship's hold below decks. McLean believed that if the decks of tanker ships were retrofitted to carry trucks loaded with cargo, the ships would make more money hauling the extra freight, and they would make it in both directions. He managed to sell an executive from National City Bank on the idea and secured $500 million in loans. McLean used $7 million to buy two old oil tankers and retrofitted them with steel platforms on their decks to hold truck trailers. At first, he left the wheels on the trailers, but soon realized the trailers would be much more stable in rough seas if he removed the wheels and secured the trailers directly to the decks. Removing the wheels eliminated wasted space beneath each trailer, and stowing the trailers so securely made it possible to load more of them. McLean managed to cram 58 truck trailers in a single layer on the deck of each ship. When it arrived, the containers were quickly removed from the ship by cranes that lowered the containers onto waiting trucks and railroad cars without any manual labor from longshoremen in a fraction of the time it would have taken to unload the cargo by hand. The container shipping era had begun. In the early 1960s, McLean talked the New York Port Authority into building the world's first wharf for container ships in Elizabeth, New Jersey. A few years later, he convinced the Port of Rotterdam to begin handling container ships as well. McLean was careful to patent the designs of his shipping containers, the cranes that lifted them off the ships, and other technologies that he developed. But he was shrewd enough to understand that there was more money to be made from increasing the flow of goods from standardized port facilities all over the world than there was by defending his patents against competitors. So he made them available, royalty-free to the world, and in the process established a single international standard for containerized shipping. By 1968, Sealand was the largest container shipping firm in the world, with annual revenues of $227 million and a fleet of 36 ships. Perhaps thinking back to his days hauling tobacco containers, he approached the American tobacco giant R.J. Reynolds about buying Sealand, and in 1969, he sold the company for $530 million. His personal stake in Sealand sold for $160 million, the equivalent of more than $1 billion today. Unfortunately, McLean, he apparently stayed in the game a little bit too long, and when the oil crisis of the late 70s, followed by the oil glut of the 80s, came along, 
The slow, expensive ships that McLean had built to take advantage of um, fuel economy couldn't compete with faster, cheaper ships. And his company went bankrupt in the mid-1980s, taking a good chunk of his, of his fortune with it. Then again, I don't know, if he could only retain a fraction of his $1 billion, he probably did okay. Anyway, that just about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. He likes to point out that despite the ups and downs in the world market, his containerized cargo is doing just fine, if you know what I mean. I'm Douglas Everett. This has been Radio Parallax. We look forward to talking to you real soon about some very interesting science stories and the documentary, JFK Revisited. We'll be speaking at length with our good friend, James D. Eugenio. We think you're going to want to hear that one.